This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. I remember one day just having all these invoices on the floor spread out, looking at them, just going, oh my God, I'm a designer, what am I doing here? From Living Etc magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pitt McCormack, and on the show today, how designer Lee Broom went from a two-person band operating out of his flat in London's Oval to creating some of the biggest spectacles the design world has ever seen, and he even managed to break the states. Now... If you went to the Selfridges department store on London's Oxford Street in 2014, you'll have seen hundreds of lights hanging alongside the escalators, made out of reclaimed decanters. Eye-catching and beautiful, they're a signature piece in Lee Broom's career, a career that saw him start out as a professional actor, pivot to fashion with a stint working at Vivian Westwood, and open his own design studio in 2007. He's gone on to sell around the world, to have his own stores in London and New York, become the darling of the interior's press, and to create some of the most recognisable pieces in recent British design. Before recording this episode, Lee chose a few key milestones from his career that became pivotal moments in how he got to where he is today. And, by giving us the story behind them, he's going to tell us how he did it. Well, the company had been going for two years. I'd done two product collections, which were both pretty successful and kind of introduced my name into the design industry. This was in 2009 that I did my third collection though called Heritage Boy. And I feel that, you know, although I'm very proud of the first two collections and they signify the sort of birth of the business, if you like, I really felt that that third collection, I managed to really cut my teeth into being a product designer. I felt that the collection was more mature. And it opened up a whole realm of UK manufacturers and craftspeople that really inspired the collection and the collections that followed on from there, really. Yeah, it really did feel like such a departure for you at the time. It was there was such an energy around you back then. I remember sort of how eye catching the Neo Neon collection was. And how were you feeling at this point in your career? I was feeling really positive and I think up until that point I hadn't necessarily decided that I would do a collection every single year. Um, At that point it was just I have an idea, this is what I want to produce and if it's successful great, if it's not then I'll continue doing interiors which is what I was doing before I started Lee Broom. Um, So I had no big expectations but I was, you know, I was definitely aware that there was a buzz, but I wasn't focused on it too much because I was really enjoying the process of designing the products and I was really kind of focused on making sure that the work stood out and it was as um, beautiful and as durable and as functional as I wanted it to be really. So I've, I've always, you know, throughout my career, I've, you know, been aware of the noise, but I've not really paid attention to it too much. How big was Lee Broom at the time? Was Were you kind of doing everything yourself at this point? There was myself and there was one other person. I had an assistant. Um, I mean, I started the company with my partner, Charles. 
Um, but we weren't working together uh, at that point. We started working together full time in 2013. So then it was myself and my assistant, Anya, and we were working in my flat in Oval, which was a sort of basement flat in South London. And we were sort of doing everything between the two of us, really. And so suddenly you had this idea to launch this Heritage Boy collection. So what did it look like? And how do you manage to get a collection together from a a flat in Oval? (laughs) Yeah, well, with great difficulty. I mean, the the first thing that I wanted to do was make sure that I got the pieces made in the UK because it wasn't feasible for me to travel across Europe or even further than that. So I wanted to find people in the UK who could make the pieces. And I also wanted to have a collection that was three small collections in one. So there were three stories that sort of uh, revolved around the idea of craft, but with three different aesthetics. But they all had a colour theme running through, which was this kind of petrol blue. Um, And after lots of researching of different manufacturers, I decided to focus on carpet weaving which we called carpentry, um, on parquet, which we called parquetry, and then on tiles. Um, so, for instance, the tiles I made, uh, coffee tables and table lamps, and these were tiles made by the same factory that used to restore the tiles for the London Underground. Um, so there was a real history behind the tiles. They were twice fired, and some of them had been used on the on the tube lines. And the fact that I was putting them into furniture and lighting pieces was quite unusual, really. Um, I don't think it had been done on interior products, maybe some exterior ones, but not in this way. Uh, The carpet pieces was interesting because it was made by the company who weaves carpets for Buckingham Palace. So I was really interested in that royal connection. And I was also very interested in the idea of Persian rugs and how they are really kind of a, a sort of status symbol uh, of British culture. You know, they've been used in stately homes from the 17th and 18th century, but it's a really Middle Eastern design. So it doesn't fit if you look at it from a fresh point of view. So I was designing Persian carpets, but when you look at the actual detail, all the um, motifs were all British. So they look very Persian from a distance, but up close you have the crown jewels, the Tudor rose, the queen's scepter, monograms, English daisies and flowers. And this wasn't a carpet on the floor. These were fused onto the front of sideboards and into the interiors of uh, pendant lights and lampshades. So again, kind of used in a way that hadn't been done before. And then the parquetry collection was really, you know, the idea of using parquet flooring, but putting it into actual furniture pieces. So classic woodwork um, and using three different types of wood, fusing them together to make one beautiful piece of furniture. So it was a really well-rounded collection and one that I was, you know, really proud of at the time, I think, and still am. But presumably making these big pieces of furniture, you know, you moved on from, from lighting to these sort of huge statement pieces. You're not storing them in your flat in oval, I'm guessing. (laughs) 
No. I mean, you ask a very good question because I have to think about where I was storing them initially. Um, no, we had we had storage facilities and yellow storage sites. And, you know, these were made to order as well. So it wasn't at that point we were making stock of all of these products and having, you know, sort of 200 carpet sideboards clogging up a big storage centre. We would make one at a time. I mean, they were high-end uh, pieces. They weren't limited edition, but they definitely had that sensibility about them. So when we did sell them, we weren't selling them in, in the hundreds. They were definitely made to order. And in some cases, people would often want slightly different finishes, which we would you know, often do custom pieces at that point. And how were you getting orders at that time? Really through, I, really through press more than anything. I mean, uh, you know, there were, social media really wasn't a thing. And uh, we obviously had our website. There were definitely a lot of online media uh, sort of publications that were starting to arise then, which we were definitely part of and right from the very beginning. So people could get access straight away. And then just the products being photographed in many different magazines all over the world. I mean, we were, you know, our, our images were everywhere, I think, for that collection. Did you have a PR at that point? Yes, we did. Yeah. And I always did um, right from the very beginning and and uh, different companies initially. But, you know, I mean, it was a I have a friend of mine who um, uh, is a very well-known club promoter. And I used to do the door of his nightclub in London called Queer Nation for, for years. I was the sort of door whore on a Saturday night um, and he is very good at marketing and publicity and I remember meeting him when I designed the first collection and I showed him and I was like how do I get this out there how do I do it and he was like darling just get yourself a PR and that's what I did and so as as well as learning the ropes of designing collections for the first time I was also learning the ropes of how to to market those collections and how to market myself as a designer and then eventually as a brand so it was it was brilliant advice to to get from the beginning and it was such a as I mentioned before such a heftier collection than what you'd previously done do you think it made a difference to how you were seen in the industry yes for sure I think the first two collections people were interested and they were intrigued but certainly the industry doesn't want to kind of form uh, an absolute opinion until you've really sort of been around for a few more years. I mean, in this industry, you know, you haven't really made it until you're 60. You know, I mean, there are designers that are just as relevant, you know, now as they, you know, when they get into their 70s, for instance, they're probably doing some of their best work. So I'm very fortunate in, in that respect. But I think from the beginning, you can't, people don't want to judge you on your first two collections. They want to see what you can do. And also, I wanted to do different things. I didn't want to just continue with neon. You know, I studied fashion design originally. I wasn't formally trained in uh, interiors or products. And in fashion, generally what happens, you have an overarching house style but you, you change from season to season, the materials, the silhouette, uh, you know, kind of the aesthetics of the collection change. And that's what I wanted to do with my own brand. I, I wanted to experience working with different materials and different manufacturers and just kind of creating different objects, I guess. 
which is quite different from what the big names of the time were doing at that time. So I think if you look back to that era, the biggest names in design were probably Tom Dixon, who I think you were being compared to quite a bit with your lighting, and mm-hmm. also Kelly Hoppen. And I think both of them sort of carved out looks that they were very them and very recognisably them and honed them and refined them, but kept to a style. Whereas I think your, you know, your desire to refresh was really interesting at the time. Yeah, and I guess I was sort of also growing up at the same time, you know. I mean, like I say, I just... I just don't like being stuck in one kind of genre or one sort of medium. I never have. I get bored quite quickly. And I just thought it would be more interesting for other people to experience that who become fans of my work or even by my work. You know, it just becomes more interesting. I mean, as you get bigger, it becomes a little bit more difficult to do because things take a lot longer. So you can't just reinvent yourself every you know, every season, you know, it becomes more challenging. Um, But, you know, initially, I just wanted to kind of have a a stab at at everything. And like I say, when you are working with two people, you know, you'd think it would be difficult to get collections out. But in a way, it's easier because you're just working at that. You're in a refined space, you're focused on it, and you're producing pieces. And that's it. You, You know, you don't have anywhere near as many customers or inquiries or you know dispatch issues or you know all the kind of kind of cogs that turn the company now um we didn't have back then so in a way it was sort of easier to do what we were doing did you feel nervous ever at that time no no i didn't i mean i've i've never really felt nervous about um releasing products or putting my work out there as such I mean you know occasionally you have a moment where you sort of you know you just before something comes out you start to you know have little elements of doubt but you know you just have to kind of block block those out and accept them for what they are and know that that that's it and then just sort of move on really. So the next milestone that you picked was a couple of years later in 2012. What had happened to you between Heritage Boy Collection and and up to this point? Well, I mean, we'd been selling uh, the products more so than we had done before. I was also doing um, some interior projects because obviously at at that point when you're starting uh, a business in product design, you know, it's still difficult to make money to produce collections and to do shows and to do the marketing. So I was still producing interiors and that was helping fund the rest of the the business. Um, And then we started to, that sort of balance shifted. We started to do less interiors and the product started to sell more. And I was really starting to kind of um, get, more attention and people coming up to me and sort of saying, oh, have you got something that's a bit more accessible or something that I can just put in? You know, everything that I was doing at that point, like you say, was very large scale, very high end. And I'd been working a bit with Crystal at that point. I'd created these um, a product called the Decantalite, which was basically upcycling vintage decanters into light shades, which was a very, I guess, a very clever and cool idea, but hadn't been done before, unbelievably. So they became very popular. And we started to run out of of vintage decanters to upcycle. 
So I found a company in the UK to basically make the decanters from scratch as light shades. And that product became successful. And then I had this idea to create a smaller version of that, which was the crystal bulb. And, you know, I wanted to, again, produce a piece that was uh, an accessible product from a Librium perspective, but still didn't um, scrimp on any of the craft and technique and the, the quality that I had in the more high-end, large-scale pieces. So... I went about creating a light bulb that was made out of crystal that was hand cut and it became super, super popular. Um, it's still one of our biggest selling products. And uh, I think it's the product that took us out of being in the kind of uh, design community consciousness into the public consciousness. So it feels to me a little bit like how a fashion house might do a lipstick or a perfume to sort of encourage people into the brand. Is that fair to say of the crystal bulbs? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you might be a fan of Chanel and, you know, cover their handbags, but, you know, you might not be able to afford to spend £5,000 on a small leather handbag, but you can buy a Chanel lipstick and it will probably be the best lipstick that you're ever going to buy. And that was the kind of mindset, I guess, for for this product. Um, it's it's the most accessibly priced Libra and product you'll buy, but it's probably the most expensive light bulb you're ever going to buy. It's £109, is that right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Although, I mean, you, you don't just, just discard of it as well. So it did have a kind of sustainable quality to it. And, you know, the actual crystal element to it is essentially a shade and you screw the led fitment into it and obviously it's led as well so that lasts for a number of years and at that point there really wasn't too many led kind of light fixtures or light bulbs uh, around so it kind of hit the zeitgeist and i think one of the reasons why it was very popular is because it has something that a lot of my work even to this day has which is a sense of familiarity about it you know in the you know, it's taking the industrial light bulb and it's taking hand-cut decorative crystal and it's putting them together in a way that hadn't been done before. You know, both of those things are well-known. There's a nostalgicness to them. And then when you put them together, you create this sort of contemporary product. Um, and I like the fact that, you know, I think, you know, when people look at it, they, you know, well, I've sort of seen that before, but not that not quite in that way. So there's an instant connection with it, you know, as opposed to something that is the bleeding edge of technology or a new innovative material, which you have to spend time to process to get your mind around. This was instantly, oh, I get that. I really like it. I want to buy it. So this was the first time you really had to manufacture on scale. I'm assuming you weren't in your flat and oval at this point. How did no. you out scaling up so rapidly? Yeah, so uh, it was at, just before that point, um, we moved into Shoreditch and um, we took over one part of a, of a really great building, an old warehouse there on Rivington Street. And just after the crystal bulb was launched and it started to become very popular, we were selling a lot. We then took over the space next door as well. Um, and at that point, that was when my partner, Charles, also came to work in the company as a partner full time. And he was able to 
really take reins of the business aspect and the import and the export and some of the production and the, the sales strategy so that I could really focus on the creative and the brand and the, and the marketing more. Just before that, he had been working on the Olympics. Um, he was head of city operations. So it was kind of basically in charge of one of the people in charge of how the city sort of functioned from a people aspect getting from a to b so his brain works really logistically as well and in business and in terms of this kind of business which is kind of supply and demand it was a very you know it was i was very appreciative of him being in the business it was uh, you know it was a struggle for me at that point to to do that on my own yeah what were you having to put your resources into at this time as you were sort of growing Everything. I mean, literally everything. I would go into work and then, you know, uh, one minute I was a designer, the next minute I was in sales, the next minute I was talking to UPS. You know, it was kind of like so many different hats and really challenging. And, you know, I was paying the invoices at that point as well. I remember one day just having all these invoices on the floor spread out, looking at them, just going, oh my God, I'm a designer. What am I doing here? But, you know, listen, I'm not complaining because it was a great problem to have. We were growing so rapidly. Um, but, you know, my background wasn't in business. It was in design. And I certainly had a flair for marketing and how to present things. But, you know, in terms of sort of day-to-day business spreadsheets, creating processes to run logistics wasn't my forte at all. Um, and, you know, Charles has always been there from the beginning of the business, um, and always kind of mentored me, but it was fantastic to have him in the company then full time to be able to really get his teeth into it as a project. This was a really interesting time for you as well, because I remember looking back, it felt like the last time that you were Lee Broom as a person before you became Lee Broom as a brand. I remember that. <laughs> that the two headed monster. the party that you had at that time was you know a lovely cockney lady but on a piano singing songs it felt like a community it felt like a group of friends and family and industry people and then after that you sort of exploded and everything went supersized did it feel like the brand was being supercharged at that moment yeah I was definitely aware of that but I mean also you know it was it it wasn't that I didn't want that and it wasn't that it wasn't a surprise you know I I I want the company to grow I wanted to be able to produce more products and I wanted to be able to do you know um shows that were more experiential and more theatrical than I'd done before and to do Milan and to do New York so I had all of these ambitions um, so it, it, it wasn't a surprise in that respect. Um, I was just pleased that it was, that it was happening, but it was, it's, it was challenging. So you, on one hand, you're looking at it thinking, this is really great. And on the other hand, you're thinking, wow, this is really hard work. Um, and it's a, it's a plate spinning act, but very exciting times, I think. And our, you know, the thing is our work was really selling at that point, you know, and globally and, you know, you talked about, you know, sort of the press, you know, 
what they thought of me in the very beginning or, you know, how seriously did they take you? It's exactly the same with dealers who sell furniture and lighting all over the world. You know, these beautiful stores and showrooms that we sell our products in now, they also want to see how you're going to fare over the next few years. They don't want to take on a brand new brand, not knowing if they're going to be there in the next six months. So that started to happen as well. We were getting a lot more sales. And I suppose at this point, you know, you have a sales team now in 30 percent of your sales are in the UK, 40 percent in the EU, 10 percent in the US, 20 percent across the rest of the world. You know, you're working on a global level at the same time. You know, you mentioned you're juggling plates. How do you sort of start keeping track of all of that? Well, again, this is something that, you know, Charles really looks after. I mean, I kind of help oversee that with him but he looks after the day-to-day running with the sales team um which i am obviously party to as well because i often have to go and make trips to see the dealers and do talks and meet with architects and designers and you know they want to see the person behind the designs and people want to understand the the stories but i actually do find that element to it very interesting and much more interesting I have to say than when I first started you know kind of our impact in certain territories and how we're doing and creating relationships with partners you know for instance we have a really fantastic relationship with a new partner in Japan and they are doing brilliantly they're going to be one of our top five dealers and therefore one of our top five countries in the next 12 months and so it's kind of forging these relationships with other really talented companies. Do those relationships come about generally because you approach them or they approach you or does it start off small how does it work I mean generally they approach they approach us um, I would say that you know the really good ones or you know that they we you get to meet them at exhibitions and shows that you put on and you start to build a relationship and you know you get to know each other and make sure that you want to kind of work with each other and that you can do good business together and it becomes part of a design community thing I guess it's it's another part of the design community that's there that you get to see particularly when you're when you're doing shows and and events so back in 2013-2014 you've just opened Electra House and you're starting to collaborate a lot more I know you had that partnership with Heels how does that sort of thing come about and how does that benefit you well you know I mean it's it's interesting because I enjoy the collaborative work um it's not the core part of our business and interestingly you know when I started this business it was you know quite unusual for a designer to produce and manufacture and sell their own products as their own brand I mean you mentioned before there's Tom Dixon Kelly Hoppen but other than that particularly in the UK there wasn't really anybody else Um, a lot of designers were all designing for other brands and you know the funnel for that to me seemed very small particularly as a lot of these big designer big design brands in Italy use the same designers so I always felt it was much more important for me to have my own thing that said it's very interesting for me to work in that other way but obviously I can't do it all the time because I don't have the time to do it so occasionally brands will quite often brands will come uh, and approach us and say we'd really like to work with Lee on this is he interested and then I look at it and then see if there's a synergy between the two brands and also see if it's a, a product type or material for instance that I'm interested in working on and then and then we'll do it. 
were you seeing a benefit at that time as well of, of having a bricks and mortar place? I mean, I remember walking in for the first time and seeing how beautifully laid out it was. Like it definitely wasn't a shop. It was a showroom. It was all those plinths. It was all those beautifully lit products on display. Was that really a calling card for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, again, it signified um, the fact that we'd grown up. It was quite a brave move as well, because I think a lot of brands in design weren't opening stores or showrooms as much, you know. Um, but I felt it was essential to the kind of lifestyle quality to what we were doing. But also as well, you know, I've mentioned that the dealers who sell our products, they you know, they don't always have the full collection. You know, they might have a small selection of your pieces along with other brands. And this was an opportunity for me to kind of showcase how I wanted all of my products to look within uh, a showroom environment. It really kind of sings for the brand, if you like. It really creates the narrative of, of who you are. And obviously it has curb appeal, you know. People see that when they walk past. A lot of people go to Shoreditch from all over the world. So it's a, it's a fantastic calling card in that way. I just want to interrupt this conversation to talk about our sponsors, Heels. As many of you know, it's a heritage British interior store that's been championing quality design for over a century. And they're now calling on you to reject fast furniture and invest in timeless pieces from heels that will last a lifetime. From the Eames lounger to the Saarinen tulip table and wishbone chair, they're pieces I've written about time and again because good quality never seems to go out of style. Take a trip to a heels store or have a look online. I've got my eye on an angle poised table lamp while I continue to work from home. Thank you very much to heels, design that lasts a lifetime. So with everything growing and expanding in the way that it was, suddenly, well, maybe not suddenly, but in 2015, you decided to do your largest ever collection at Saloni in Milan. Firstly, what is the significance of the Milan Furniture Fair for you? Well, it's the holy grail of design. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I mean, I started going from 2007 when I started the company and I was just blown away by what the designers were producing and the brands, the sheer scale of it and the amount of people it attracts and doesn't just attract, you know, the design community, it attracts members of the public, you know, families with kids, their dogs, you know, it becomes a massive public um, affair. And I, I thought it was fantastic. And it was all, it's also an opportunity for the design community to really get together and to sort of, you know, to have meetings, to get drunk, to, you know, it's kind of like it all happens in Milan. And it was a huge ambition for me to, to show in Milan. I, the first time I showed was in 2012, but really 2015, I think, was the show where I'd kind of, you know, really said, right, this is what we're about. This is what, this is what we're doing. This is what we can do. So tell me how it looked. So um, I had... First of all, I went out there to scout for a space um, and I wasn't sure what the overall kind of look of the show was going to be. But I did have around 25 pieces that I was going to release. And that's a huge uh, collection. But I had so many designs up to that point and I wanted to release them all. And it was kind of like it was almost like fast forwarding. I knew that a lot of these pieces would still be in production in years to come and, and they still are. Um, and I wanted to get all of these ideas out there. So I went to Milan, I looked for a space and I saw this um, row of disused shops on Via Capellini. And I thought this would make a really good 
kind of Libram department store. So I basically went in there. We, we actually knocked through walls and we created a two-floor Libram department store, which was really like a, it was kind of like a film set. Everything was blown out in grey. There was different vignettes across the floors from millinery to the shoe department to the perfumery, the wine shop, ladies' accessories, uh, fitting rooms. There was a stock room. And it sort of took you on a journey throughout the whole store. We had a beautiful um, orchestral soundtrack playing. And then all the products stood out in their natural materials, all these really vibrant colours against the grey. Um, we had all of my sales team there dressed head to toe in Westwood and little Libroom pins and sort of their um, shop assistant outfits. And, you know, there were so many little details that people could see as they went round. Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, it was it was just great to be able to produce the type of show that I'd always dreamed of of producing. Is it? hugely expensive to produce this sort of thing or are you able to find ways to cut corners that doesn't stop it from looking amazing we are able to cut corners and that really stems from my background in interiors and also we make a lot of this in-house ourselves back in london and we we ship it to milan but yes it is expensive it's it's hugely expensive and it's a massive undertaking not just from a financial aspect for the business every year but it also takes out a huge portion of the team every year as well but it won one of the top 15 shows of the milano design awards that year didn't it out of the 1500 yes. on on yes. display so presumably the result of all that hard work is global recognition did you see that reflected in in sales in press in buzz Absolutely. And it really made me understand the life cycle of a show, you know, so you open and it's very difficult when you're doing this because you've been working on something for so long, sometimes two years on the products and the concept for the show, maybe like a few months, you do all of this setting up. It's kind of blood, sweat and tears. Everybody is invested in it, the whole team. And then you open and then it's almost a slightly deflating feeling because for me, I have to go from that into kind of right now I've got to be Lee Broom the brand and you're sort of walking around showing people and you're just kind of critiquing things going oh that doesn't look quite right that doesn't look quite right you know because I am a perfectionist so that can be um that's really challenging that first day of opening a show for me is always um you know challenging the following day is great because I've had a good night's sleep and then I can sort of enjoy it a lot more but what tends to happen is, is that, you know, throughout that week and with a show like that, it starts to build up a buzz. So it might start off a bit quieter. Then as the week went on, we started getting more and more and more people coming and people were hearing about it. And there's always, you know, five to ten shows that are on people's lips that people talk about throughout the week. And this was one of those. And so more and more people started to come. And then once we'd closed and we'd finished you know, the life cycle of the show continues. It's online, it's on press, it's in social media and people are talking about, I mean, I still have people talk to me about that show like it was last year. You know, I remember in Milan 
last year somebody said to me oh I love that department show you did last year and I was like darling that was 2015 you know but it's still fresh in people's memories. So after you had conquered Milan in such a way you did what any pop star would have done at the same time in their career you decided to go and try and conquer America so (laughs) next year you moved to New York with a moved the brand to New York. Yeah I mean we've been doing pretty well in the States. Um, So, you know, from a business perspective, we wanted to expand on that. And also, you know, I love, I love America. I love New York. So I kind of wanted to be part of that. I didn't want to just go there as a visitor. I wanted to do business there. So we set about creating a a pop-up store for around three months and that was in 2016 and we launched it during New York Design Week. We'd not shown in that before but we took on a very large uh, showroom space on Green Street which is in Soho in downtown Manhattan and Soho is really the the area where all the big furniture and lighting brands are particularly a lot of Italian brands and we, it's just off Broom Street, so we called it Broom Off Broom. I had some really good advice, and it was about launching in the States, which was if you're going to launch the brand in the States, it cannot be an extension of what you're doing. It has to be launched like it's a brand new brand. And that was always in my, in my head. Um, it, was, uh, it was hard work, but it was, it was a fantastic um, opportunity for us. Who gave you that advice? Because they sound very wise. Yeah, it was Christopher from the rug company. So what was that feeling like for you at the time? So you weren't starting from scratch in America, but you were sort of going back a few steps in terms of being well-known. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, it's different. It, I mean, you know, sort of, I suppose in a way, you know, the doors are a little bit heavier to open, um and you know and and in a way that's that's a good thing because it reminds you of like how much more there is to do and how big the world is you know in fact it really opened my eyes to not just being working and being in the states but globally i mean from that point on i kind of you know before that i saw us as a british brand and now i see us as a global brand yeah, it was kind of, it felt like starting again, I guess, but with a bit more collateral, I suppose. How did you, how did you make those doors a little bit easier to open? I mean, I just pushed harder and I did a good, <laughs> <laughs> I did a good um, uh, exhibition. I mean, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty big and it was, it was full on. It was a beautiful space. So anybody that came to see it were like, okay you know, they mean business. And how long did it take to turn the US into the second biggest market in the world after the UK, which I believe is what it currently is? Um, It took three years. Yeah. So basically, straight after Broom off Broom, we had then decided that we would get an office space in New York. However, we were approached in uh, the space that we were by some realtors and brokers. And they said, this is brilliant. This looks fantastic. We think you'd be really good to open a permanent store on this street. And we have a space up the road, which we think would be perfect. 
Um, and I went with Charles. We took a look at the space and then a week later we signed and then we flew back to London two days after that. So we kind of made that decision when we were there and it was a, it was a huge gamble, but it, um, it paid off. And we opened up the store three months later in September. And then in 2018, you launched the Observatory Collection, which after all this sort of growth and, you know, spectacle of your career, suddenly felt very refined and considered and, and almost comparatively quiet. Was that a conscious thing for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, you know, as well as, you know, what I talked about before about keeping things fresh and developing and changing, you know, if you've done presentations where you're creating department stores and, you know, palazzos in the back of vans and huge merry-go-rounds in sort of big caverns and mazes and whatever, everybody used to say to me, go, how are you going to top that next year? And in my head, I was just like, right, well, easy. I'm going to do the complete opposite and just scale it right back. And I think that's really a, a kind of important thing to do. You don't need to top yourself. You just need to do something different year on year. And for that collection, I really, really wanted to focus on the product. So initially it was a furniture and lighting collection. And then I felt that the lighting pieces were a lot stronger than the furniture pieces. And I decided to release purely a lighting collection and we presented in a very modern gallery in, in Milan, and it was very pared back. Actually, it was pared back, but it was still quite fancy. It looked super architectural with a, uh, a really gorgeous blue carpet running throughout the entire space. And then just uh, the products spaced very beautifully between each other. Yeah, it's it's been a very, very successful collection. And I, I mean, it's it's born our biggest selling product to date now, which is the Orion light. Even which, more um, so the crystal bulb. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the crystal bulb isn't our biggest selling product anymore. Um, we have a uh, like our crescent light and the Orion light is it's definitely sell more. Wow. Um, and it's it's funny because, you know, when I was designing the products for this, that product, I remember saying to Charles, yeah, I mean, I love this product. I said, but I, I think this is going to be more of a showpiece. I don't think people are going to buy this, you know, and it became the biggest selling product we've ever done. So and why do you think it resonated so much? Well, I mean, it's it's in its simplicity. And I think that, you know, it's essentially uh, a polished gold tube with an illuminated sphere and a uh, an illuminated tube with a polished gold sphere and you can hang them vertically or horizontally so in this sense the end user can create all these different constellations with just the two products because people are wanting more bespoke they're wanting uniqueness they want to put their own stamp on things so this product really allowed particularly designers for hotels and restaurants to be really experimental with it and to create their own installations but I still ultimately have control over how the product looks. So I, I think that's probably why it was so successful. So looking back over your career in the way that we've just done, have you ever had a master plan? And if you have, how close are you to where, to where you wanted to be? Well, I think it's important to have a goal 
Um, and I also think it's important to give yourself a bit of bandwidth to sort of deviate from that goal as well. I mean, my career on one hand like might seem like a kind of bunch of random sort of experiences and things that have just happened. But I have always had one goal from when I was very young, and that is to have my own business, to do my own thing, to be well known for it and to excel. And so when you're on that pathway opportunities present themselves that might not appear as opportunities before having that mindset. And I definitely have other things that I want to achieve, other things that I want to design and create and do. And um, yeah, I, you know, hopefully I'll be able to fulfill all of those. Yeah. And what's next for Lee Broom? Well, we've had to put a lot of our uh, initial plans on hold due to the current situation. So obviously, you know, we had a wonderful show planned for Milan and something planned for New York Design Week, which we've sort of were unable to do. So now I'm kind of looking and sort of trying to relocate those launches and think about how I'm going to present them. There'll definitely be some new launches happening in autumn for sure, and also a new showroom in New York that will definitely be happening. So we have one last section to finish everything off. It's a quick fire round. Okay. The home truth section. So Lee, which single design are you most proud of? My marble tube light. Which designer is your biggest inspiration? Alexander McQueen. Oh, God. I mean, like so many reasons. Just a brilliant designer, technically amazing, aesthetically brilliant. The shows were incredible. How many of your own designs are in your home? Mm, Oh, gosh. Uh, Seven. I'm looking right now at the carpet piece I talked about earlier from the Heritage Boy collection. I have a carousel light, I have some chamber lights, I have a crystal bulb, I have a salon sofa, and I have a coffee table. Yeah, shadow coffee table. What's the last thing you read? Um, The History of Architecture. Good. good? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what? I don't really like reading... um, kind of novels or fiction and I don't read that much so if I do read I will read a a kind of more factual book so and that's quite a good book so I've got a a very quick attention span and it's basically one building every two pages that kind of summarise the history of architecture. What's your signature dish? (laughs) Well um, it would be spaghetti bolognese (laughs) out of a tin (laughs) now alcohol to drink or not to drink (laughs) to drink um which one design by somebody else do you wish you've made yourself Mm, good question uh probably the shoom bowl by nigel coates which is for uh alessi um, that's one of my favourite designs. I just love its fluidity and its organic shape and then it has this beautiful metallic finish. And it was designed a long time ago and it's still, you know, effortlessly contemporary. And lastly, where can people find your work? You, you can find my work on my website. You can find it on my uh, Instagram, at uh, Lee Broom, and then you can find it in many stores across the world. Perfect. 
Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was great. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. <laughs>